Hello and welcome to The Real Writing Process. I'm your host Tom Pepperdine and on this episode my guest is Zen Cho. Zen is a multiple award-winning fantasy author. Her awards include a Hugo in 2019 for her story, If at First You Don't Succeed, Try Try Again. This interview took place at the beginning of October 2021, five months after the release of her book, Blackwater Sister. So today I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Zen Cho. Good, good morning. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well. My first proper question, as always, is what are we drinking? So we've got our rhubarb with honey. I've gone off caffeine um, a while ago, but still need my hot tea-like drinks. So yes. rhubarb has been a good... Yeah, it's delicious. I'm just going to have a sip now. Mm. So is this what you drink when you're writing? Um, sometimes. Often I have the rhubarb without the honey. Sometimes I just drink water. I don't really have strict routines around that. Okay. And where I'm speaking to you now, is that your office? Is this where you do the majority of your writing? Uh, yeah. So this is my study where I'm sitting here. I'm very lucky to have a study, especially as I've been working from home like many other people the past couple of years. Um, I would say I do 50-50. I do some writing at my desk, but often I go and sit at the sofa in the living room when I'm writing as well with my laptop in my lap. I know that's not really very good for you ergonomically. But it just feels cosy. No, no, no. Absolutely. And I think we all do it. And so how long have you had this writing space how long have i had the study so we moved to this house in 2018 um and then it took a little while to get it set up so a few months to get the furniture in and the shelves in and so on i guess for the past four years i've had a study and before then we lived in london and, and generally were renting one bed flats and so this is the first time i've had a proper study and it came in, in good time really because i you know working out of a one bed flat in london wouldn't have been you know working from home wouldn't have been great so previously i was definitely a sofa writer that was yeah that was where the magic happened yeah. do you feel that having a separate space has improved your concentration do you find that you write more more productive uh, with your writing sessions having a separate space it's variable isn't it because actually when it comes to putting words down I still like to retreat to my sofa what I find I end up doing actually in the study is I do the kind of business side of things for some reason I associate sitting at a desk in a proper office chair with doing emails and doing podcasts and, and so on so it's all the writing stuff that isn't actually writing that I do here and maybe because I was a sofa writer for so long I still find that's my safe space in terms of actually generating fiction and I, I used to like to write in cafes as well obviously before before the pandemic made that a bit dicey but um you know but it really changes with each project they seem to go better when you're in a different space I wrote quite a lot of my second novel sitting in the members room of Tate Modern because I got a Christmas present of a membership there and found we live quite close at the time so I'd walk there on my writing days and just found I'd be much more productive there than if I was at home saying that having a, a separate space is uh, good for, for certain things but also the coziness of a sofa. I think a lot of us can relate to writing at home, being on the sofa with the laptop. How do you deal with distractions? I think, you know, sort of like living with family and certainly when we've had lockdown, maybe there's more people around than usual. Is, is that quite a challenge? Well, with my partner, it's not so bad because we're, we're both companionably on the sofa side by side doing our own thing kind of people. So that, that worked for years. And then now we've got a small child that works less well. But thank goodness he goes to bed earlier than we do. <laughs> So I get the evening. So the study is useful if he happens to be at home during the day because he goes to the nursery. But if he happens to be home during the day and I'm writing during the day, I have a day job, but I work part time. So I do get a writing day. Then obviously I do retreat to the study and, and lock myself in. And he, he broadly respects the study door. He knows that's mummy and daddy's office. He's not allowed to go in. Good. Okay. And... Moving on to what inspires you with your writing, do you have anything that you feel helps trigger inspiration for you? Do you find reading helps or going for walks, certain kind of music that can get you into a creative headspace? I think it all goes in there, doesn't it? It all contributes to filling the well. And so I think having variety, um, trying new things, going new places, reading and watching new things and listening to new music all kind of ultimately goes into your work but maybe not directly 
In terms of getting a real, <laughs> a really intense shot of inspiration, though, this is something I've tried to recommend it to friends before, but it doesn't really work unless you're constitutionally set up for it, which is a, actually one of the most creatively inspiring things I, can, I find I can do is write fanfic. But I only really write fanfic when I'm into a fandom, if I like the original source, and that gives me there's maybe there's some character dynamic or there's something about the setting or there's something that I find really inspiring and that I want to spend more time with. And so that, that's always very enjoyable because it feels like a, a solid shot of inspiration. And because it's fanfic, it's just played. I don't have to worry about the market. I don't have to worry about whether I can sell anything and so on. But also, like, I have limited control over whether I'm actually going to get interested enough in something to want to write fanfic about it. So yeah, that would be my main recommendation, actually, if you're feeling creatively low. But it's not even something that I can control for myself. So if I feel kind of you know, I'm in a creative rut, I'm like, oh, I really need a new fandom. But like, there's nothing I can really do about that except I guess watch more shows, read more books, see if something catches me. And I guess that's something that you can start at any time. So with your fanfic, when did that start? Was that from an early age or was that something that you developed? Yeah, so I started fanfic, writing fanfic as a teenager. In terms of writing, I've been writing on and off since I was quite a small child. So I started writing little stories when I was like six or seven, but never very consistently. And I wouldn't really share it with anyone and I wouldn't finish my story. So I would say fanfic, when I, which I entered when I was in my teens, that was really the first time I started finishing stories and almost operating as a real writer and that I was sharing my work with other people getting feedback and sort of learning my craft and and then in terms of the journey I then took I was almost exclusively writing fanfic I knew I wanted to be writing more original fiction I wanted to write for publication and trying to fumble my way there and I, I think I actually what happened in kind of my early 20s was I found sort of university um, all absorbing so I didn't do any writing when I was there and having had that break when I came back to writing I thought well you know this is time to really have a go at writing for publication trying to get published and focusing and developing my own voice outside the fandom space where you really are taking your lead from whatever fandom or canon you're writing for and some people they start out with fanfic writers and they end up writing original fiction or professionally and they just don't go back to fanfic really you know that's kind of their journey but for me I subsequently found although I took a break from fanfic I found actually it's really energizing for me to still revisit that part of my writing practices or it's very pretentious way of saying it but you know my kind of creativity and and so I I still I view that very much and both my kind of writing covers both of those realms what is it when you're coming to original work when it's first forming about the concept that rather than just a fun idea or something you can translate into fan fiction what is it that makes you decide, no, this is a, a story that I wish to tell with my own original characters? That Are you aware of any distinction? So with fanfic, it's, it's always based on the, the existing world and the existing story. And generally, because I'm quite character-driven, so it's generally about the relationship of the characters. Um, so there's something about them I want to explore. Um, so it's very much specific to that. When I'm writing original work, it's quite a different process. And it tends to be, I've realized over time, two things that, that will come together into a workable story, you know, because like as a writer, you, you're constantly having like little ideas and they might not really go anywhere. But the, when I've got an idea that I'm like, okay, that would make um, a, a story I could probably write and it would have bones and I could probably publish it. It's generally that there's some sort of character or relationship dynamic. Often I quite like writing odd couples. So it's sometimes they're, they're kind of a romantic couple, but sometimes as with my most recent novel, the main relationships between a young woman and her grandmother, who's dead, she's a ghost, and they were estranged in life. And so the young woman didn't know her grandmother, but she's getting to know her now she's dead. And so that's the kind of main relationship that book. And so there's that relationship or character dynamic, usually of two people, but it could be a larger group dynamic that I want to explore. And then there's a kind of something about the setting or the world that I want to explore. So again, um, going back to my um, most recent novel, as an example, it's called Blackwater Sister, and it's set in Penang in Malaysia. And the thing that I specifically was interested in exploring was the religious practice or tradition of spirit mediumship in this kind of Chinese folk religion tradition that I grew up in. There's a practice of spirit medium people who will invite in a god, so a god will come and possess them. And then you as a devotee can go to the temple and you can go ask the god questions, or you can say, I've got this problem, and they might give you a blessing, or they might, you know, give you something to help you resolve that problem. And I thought that was really 
interesting and obviously it has a clear fantastical element I guess although it's something that people actually practice and believe in and so that was the other element that I had so the two ideas I had were a young woman who has a really bossy grandmother who's dead and she's a ghost and she's just like haunting her and this idea of exploring spirit mediumship and that specific aspect of the world and part of the world and that's what came together and and so what I found generally with my original stuff is that combination of the two and I suppose what distinguishes it from the fanfic actually is often the character dynamics might be something where I originally was inspired by a fandom. Um, so one of the examples is I wrote a novella called The Order of the Pure Moon Reflected in Water, which was published by Tor.com Publishing in 2020. And with that, I was, was inspired by um, the characters of Baze, Malbus and Chirrut in Star Wars Rogue One. So they are played by Donnie Yen and Jiang Wen. And, and they're kind of supporting characters. They're relatively minor, but I really enjoyed their dynamic. And it was that dynamic that I took into and I thought, oh, it would be interesting if I gender flip them and, you know, and put them in a different, different setting and see how that worked. And then the original side is often this idea of there's something about history or there's something about the world that, I, that I'm interested in exploring. And uh, coming back to uh, Blackwater Sister, those two aspects that you've got, the relationship and the spirit mediumship, with the relationship dynamic, were you at all self-conscious about how your family might interpret that? Because I know it's fiction, but inevitably there can be a drawing from life. So was there any pressure with that? Well, well, not particularly. And one element I have to say is because my family's not that diligent about reading my work. So my sister regularly names my first novel, Sorcerer to the Crown, as one of her favorite books. And she's just about read the prologue, which is two, two or three pages long. She doesn't read much. I'm not offended by it. So that's one thing that's comforting, knowing that they did, might not read my work at all. I guess the other thing is, is I, I'm not super self-conscious about it. It is about a kind of a young Chinese Malaysian woman and her grandmother and the main character, Jess. I, I, I did draw from several aspects of my life in creating her, although there are obviously there are other aspects that are pure fiction. And she is a character rather than an avatar. And then her grandmother, I guess, is inspired by the, the many kind of bossy aunties I know, um, not necessarily related to me. But I, I think like part of why I'm just not too worried about it is I think the things that are drawn from life, I would hope my family would say, fair enough, it's a fair cop, you've got to start on the page. <laughs> That's not an unfair yeah. depiction. But then the other, the other side of it is actually they're fictional characters, so they're all heightened for effect, and particularly the grandmother and Blackwater sister, she's a ghost, and, and she has a fairly murky past, and mm. she um, doesn't particularly have strong moral, <laughs> or perhaps she has an alternative moral code, is a kinder way of putting it, and there are certain things she does in the book that certainly none of my female relatives would dream of doing, and I think that, I think that hopefully provides enough of this I certainly yeah. don't think any of my aunts are going to come at me say, do you really think we're capable of attempted murder and so on? <laughs> yeah. But I guess with, as you said earlier, with the uh, spirit mediumship, that is something that a lot of people still practice and it is a big part of their uh, own belief system. So I feel that although there's a lot of fantastical elements in the story and it is clearly a fiction piece, there is still a pressure to represent that uh, sympathetically and with a certain degree of accuracy. How did you go about researching that? You know, was there a lot from your own life growing up that you could draw from or was there actually a lot of research that you had to do? Well, you know, it's a combination. So as I say, that's the religious tr tradition that I grew up in. But actually, um, so there's a line in the book that talks about and says, so Jess's parents, their attitude to, to religion is that they leave the gods alone in the hope that the gods will do them the same favor. And that was very much my parents' attitude to religion when we were growing up. And, and also a lot of these things are really taboo. Like, you know, like people are very cautious about talking too much about it. You don't want to offend any spirits, basically. So actually, we would go to the temple from time to time and we'd pray and so on. But a lot of what was going on was never really explained, especially to the kids. And you're told not to make any comments or anything. And particularly, I think my mum was particularly wary of um, spirit meetings. You know, I definitely was never taken to see one. Although I would hear about, say, my aunt would go and consult one, you know, when she had some sort of problem and the, the god would say this or the god would advise that. So it's something that I was aware of, but didn't really have direct interaction with. And, and I wouldn't say I was like embedded in that culture necessarily um, although I grew up around it and that's part of why I wrote the book because it was something that seemed quite important to my family and the people that I knew and the culture I grew up in but that I didn't fully understand and I think that's often very creatively generative for something that about the world that you don't really understand and I often when I'm writing fiction that's my way of thinking through things that I don't fully understand and find kind of mysterious and interesting and I obviously drew on that the way that people 
back home will talk about spirits and gods and ghosts and things and that all of that culture. But I also did research because, as I said, my parents never explained anything. So I didn't really understand anything about what was going on. And what I found really helpful, and actually this was what one of the things that directly inspired the d- decision to write Blackwater Sister, was I found a a couple of books by an academic called Jean D. Bernardi, who's an anthropologist, I think now based in Canada. And she had gone to Penang in Malaysia in the 1980s and then field research specifically in Chinese folk religion, the practice of spirit mediumship. Um, and so she'd written a couple of books, including The Way That Lives in the Heart. And I, I picked up The Way That Lives in the Heart. And I just found it really interesting. And it, what it basically did was give me this intellectual framework for all um, these beliefs and traditions I'd grown up around. And yeah, so that's what I drew on in, in writing the book. And I think I am conscious when with a religion or religious, religious practice that's so relatively obscure in the global stage, I am very conscious of dealing with it, you know, relatively sensitively and kind of respect. But at the same time, as I said, for me, writing the book was a personal thing as well. So respect wasn't necessarily my, my focus, understanding was, which I think is a fair enough way to, to approach it. Yeah, I, I certainly think in my reading of it, it's definitely a sympathetic, it's not poking fun, it's not uh, derogatory in any way. And you do get a real sense of those characters that just leave the gods alone, they'll leave us alone, but also those who can't avoid the gods, you know, you know avoiding spoilers uh, like there, but uh, some have them far more in their lives than others. I want to touch on one thing that you said there about is it an element of society that you d- didn't have much knowledge on, so this is a way of g- gaining understanding on that. And I think you've said similar things about Regency England and colonialism with your earlier novels. Is there any aspect of society that you are conscious of lacking in knowledge and understanding that might inform future work? Is there something that you're researching at the moment? And we don't need to talk about plots or characters or anything, but is there any aspects of society that are really captivating you at the moment? For me, it's it's not only something that I just don't, I don't quite understand, but it's something that feels very personal. And that's been the case with kind of all the books I've worked on, that this mysterious element that I'm working through. Like colonialism is so dominant in my personal history and the history of Malaysia. And it's something that I think is still poorly understood in, in many places uh, and by many people. And that was definitely something that powered my first two novels, using the Regency romance almost as a lens to think about that. And then with Order of the Pyramid Reflected in Water, the world building element or the mystery element was actually partly the history of the Malayan emergency, so the mid-20th century conflict post-World War II between communist guerrillas and firstly the British colonial government in Malaya and sub- subsequently the independent right-wing government who came into power upon independence. So um, that that's kind of um, what I've worked on. Often it's to do with history and parts of history that I see as shaping the culture I grew up in and the society I grew up in. And so in, in shaping me. I've got various projects going on at the same time, and you don't always know which one you'll bring to completion in a sensible time frame. But two things I'm quite interested in. So one thing is, one is overseas Chinese communities, so, so the history of those. And I'm really interested in the moment at looking into what some people say was the first Asian democracy, and it was a mining settlement in Borneo, um, set up by Chinese migrants in the late 18th century. Yeah, I think that's right. And so they, so these migrants came down looking for work, and they um, got um, kind of concessions from the local sultans and set up these mining communities. And they, they developed enough that you could say they were essentially like a republic. Um, there are a few of them, and you know they say they voted on their leaders, which is why they're arguably a democracy. And they had armies and and you know education systems and so on, which I thought was really interesting. And they didn't really survive. None of them survived into the present day. But I, I just thought that was a really interesting artifact of history. So that's something I'm really interested in and how that links and how that, so the, so overseas communities in Southeast Asia, Chinese communities in Southeast Asia, I'm really interested in. But the other aspect of that I'm thinking through is, is I'm trying to find a way of summarizing it. Basically, what does it mean to be a post-colonial subject? I'm, kind, I'm quite interested in the various issues that come up with being from or living in a, a a country, often a developing country, that is a former colony and, and all the political and social issues that come with that. And so it's still thinking about colonialism, but in a way that's not necessarily transparent to someone who isn't from that sort of country. There, there are just some issues and some stories that when I speak to other people from, say, Commonwealth countries or other kind of 
post XX colonies, they're like, oh yeah, we have that issue too. I mean, one, one very common issue is a religious or racial conflict, communalism, because of the kind of mix that it's partly not just due to colonialism, but partly it is because a lot of the time when you see different groups in a country that they ended up there because of the operation of empire. So for example, Malaysia is majority Malay and they were there. And, and so there were also indigenous groups there at the beginning. And then the British, for example, brought in a lot of indentured labor from India and China and that you know fundamentally changed the kind of composition of the, the country's population, although it's always been a diverse place. So things like that, and that, that then creates problems or challenges for a, a modern community and in terms of nation building and building a shared identity when you've got um, people who have different religions, different languages, different cultures. So that's one very, obviously it's not specific or, or, or unique to ex-colonies, but it's something that is a very common experience. So that's a really long answer, but that's one of the things I've been thinking about. And it's interesting to wonder how that's going to come out in my work. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's something that I'm really looking forward to seeing you explore in your writing. One thing I wanted to ask, because when doing my research, I noticed that you have edited a cyberpunk, a collection of short stories. Are you looking to the future with any future projects that you're working on? I'm not looking to the future in the sense of probably science fiction. I, I think just because of the way my creativity works and where my interests lead me down, I tend to spend a lot of time trying to work out what history means and, and what its impact is in the present day. And I mean, although I also agree with, I think it's Ken Liu, but I'm sure it's who, who said this, I'm sure lots of people have said this, which is science fiction set in the future. It's always about the present moment anyway, because everyone, no matter what you're producing, you probably are commenting or inspired by the present moment in some way. I would say with the kind of shift in, in the global power balance, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm not that interested in what the big countries are doing. And I think that's a kind of artifact of being from a small country. And, you know, Malaysia's never going to be a global power. We're just not big enough and we don't have the resources and so on. And obviously I have this cultural connection to China and that I'm ethnic Chinese. But that's part of why I'm really interested in overseas Chinese communities, because to me, being Chinese is something that... Uh, has a very different meaning from what it might mean to somebody who lives in mainland China and, it, and belongs to the ethnic majority uh, and speaks Mandarin. I would say that for none of my grandparents, all of whom are or would have been read as ethnic Chinese, I think we, we also have some Southeast Asian mix in there, but we, you know, they would have functioned in society as Chinese. For none of them spoke Mandarin as their first language. And yet that's obviously, that's viewed as the Chinese language and, and treated as such in China. So to me, the kind of nuances of that are, are more interesting. And, and the things that really interest me are small histories in a way, small places, and the kind of specificity of culture in those places. That's one of the reasons, for example, I said Blackwater System Penang, which is a small place, um, which has a very specific in history. It's just in a way my, my focus is quite narrow. But I think once you look into the specifics of something, that's where you find the universal. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but I, I think that is true. Yeah, I think, as you said earlier, sort of it's uh, the character and the character dynamic within, I guess it's more on the, the, the micro scale and recognising, you know, we're all humans. So I completely understand where you're coming from on that. So once you've got an idea of the character dynamic and the setting of that, how do you discipline yourself to get all the words on the page as someone who works part time? As you said before, have you always worked part time? Was that something that always helped you with your writing? Or was that something that has developed more recently? It developed more recently. So I went part time when I got my book deal. I guess it's been, I got my book deal not that long after I started working. Because let me think, I think I signed it in 2014. And I started working in 20. 10 and I'm a decade into my career as a lawyer so that's my day job so I um, was working full-time and writing in the evenings which worked fine but um, wouldn't have worked fine with novel deadlines and, and you know contractual deadlines so when I got my book deal I went part-time so that's how that worked. And do you have an opinion on daily targets are they useful or hindrance do you try and do a certain amount each day or just when the whim takes you? Yeah, so that's the other side of your question, right? Like how do you have the discipline to actually get the words out? So how, how it worked for me is for a long-form project, let's say a novella or a novel, I sit down and I do an outline at the beginning. And it's relatively detailed, but it's not as detailed as some outlines I've, I've seen. So my friend Aliette de Baudard, like she works in this extraordinary way. Um, I mean, it works very well for her. I could never do it. But she spends months outlining it. But it's an extremely detailed outline. It really is the entire plot in detail, every scene, every chapter. And then she writes the book very quickly in maybe three months because she's got it all there. And, and all the kind of 
stuff that I would work out in the first draft, she works out at that outlining stage. So she'll be like, oh, this is, ha- this is happening now. So now I, now I need to go rejig the first couple of chapters, my outline, because I've, I've decided this will happen. Whereas I would have a much looser outline. It would start from the beginning and it would go to the end. I'm quite a linear writer, but it would be, this happens, but much more chapter by chapter level or even higher than that. And then while I would put down things that I think would happen, but I wouldn't work out every single detail. And the reason for that is because I often don't know if it's going to work until I actually start writing. And when once I start writing it, generally things will happen when I'm like, okay, that's more interesting. Or the idea that I originally had doesn't work. So then I go back to the outline and, and adjust it. And from what I've seen, because Aliette's outline is so detailed, that doesn't really happen to her at the first drafting stage. That happens at an earlier stage. But anyway, so I have this fairly, not the, the most high level outline, but also not the like most detailed outline that anyone's ever seen. And that's when I find, yeah, I do find that word counts do help. I, I often use Pacemaker, um, this website, and you can get a free plan or, or a paid one, but it's to feed in your word count for the project. So if you're going to do a novel and you think it's going to run to 100,000 words, you put that in and then you put how long you're going to uh, you know, take to write it. You might put a target of, okay, I'll get a, a draft sorted in six months and how you want to work. And then it just tells you how many words you need to do per day in order to hit that target. I find that quite helpful. And because of the way that I work, I have more time to do stuff on Fridays, which is my non-working day. Um, So Pacemaker lets you say, okay, I'll push on Friday, i.e. I'll do more words on Friday. And then I just try to follow that, basically. I, I feel that with that, there can be sometimes, especially when you're starting out writing, where there's a lot of words on the page and you're way ahead of your pace and it's feeling great. But are there times when you're behind the pace and can that add a level of stress or pressure or is it good pressure for you? So I'm always behind. Like I never get ahead. (laughs) Maybe because I don't know if it's a combination of I just work. I think it's fundamentally I work a lot slower than I wish I did, basically. And then life happens and there are going to be evenings where you're like, I I just can't be arsed to do any words today. Or maybe the kids have been ill and you just haven't slept very much and and so on. I always drop behind, but then I think I tend to set quite ambitious targets. If I'm drafting under contract, the the last day of my kind of, you know, that I put into Pacemaker will never be the day that I submit the book. It's always a a few months before, so I have some months to actually rework the draft and revise it. I don't really love time pressure, I have to say. I'm reasonably good at meeting my deadlines, except when, not with my second novel, but that was a bit of a disaster in terms of the writing process. But since then, I've been reasonably good at setting deadlines and being realistic about how long things will, will take me to do. I think just because, you know, I have so much else going on so with your second novel was that outside influences just things were going on outside of writing that were impacting your writing or was it uh, more structural within the story it was quite a tricky book to get it was both but I, I think it was a very classic issue and I know I'm not the only writer who suffered this where basically for the first book that you write after you've been published and I had been published before my first novel but in kind of a smaller way so it was the first book I was writing I didn't manage to write or finish the second book before the first book was published. I was really writing it after the first book had been published. And I just really struggled with that because it changes. I think the level of attention just changed, like external attention. And what I found after that is that you have to find, again, that kind of private space in your head where your creativity flourishes because you have all these kind of responses from people, say, about your first book, and you can feel a lot of pressure in terms of right? People want the story to go this way. They'll want the second book to be like the first book, or they'll want it to be different from the first book. And you're trying to meet expectations that really are externally imposed. And I I think that's often very damaging to people's creativity. Not everyone's, but I think for a lot of people, they need to be able to hear their own internal voice. And so what I found was, it's a bit of both. There's that kind of external situation, but partly it was also the internal situation where I was having to rediscover my voice in a way. With that rediscovering of your voice, are there moments where you really suffer from imposter syndrome? I know there's a lot of writers where at a certain point in a project, they can feel that they're a terrible writer. Is that something that you've ever felt? And if so, have you overcome it? Oh, yeah, constantly. I suffered from it really badly. And I say in the past tense, because actually, my confidence as a writer has improved massively over the years. I think, you know, after you've written a few novels, and you've been through some of the ups and downs that the industry can offer, but you see yourself continuing to make work and and improving. 
I think that does give you a boost of confidence. You're like, okay, actually I can do this. I can learn from it. And I would say I'm much, much more confident as a writer now than I was when my first book came out. And I feel I know myself a lot better and I know my, my capabilities. Um, that said, obviously I, st- I, I still suffer from insecurity. And as you say, there's certain points in a project when you're, you know, when you're kind of deep into it and you're like, oh, this is really shit and this is terrible and it's not structured right. The plot is wrong. Nobody will be interested in it. And I think those voices though, I think everyone has them. You know, I've spoken to people who have published almost 30 novels and they still have that every time they sit down and write something new. Obviously, hopefully there will also be points in the project where you're like, this is really good. I'm, I'm doing really good work here. But that's, that's just all part of, I think, writing. This, you know, it's part of the kind of ups and downs. I think those voices, the doubtful ones, the ones that are like, nobody will be interested. They're your ego trying to protect you from failure because there's bound to be people who don't like the book and there's always the risk of rejection no matter how established you are and if it's not rejection from a publishing gatekeeper it's rejection from a reader it's rejection by a review site and so on and so you just have to learn to live with that I think and and realize that the the voices aren't really based in objective truth they're your psyche trying to shield itself from damage is there any certain techniques that you have to overcome those voices like you say those uninspired periods where you're just like this isn't working is it just a matter of plowing on just turning up and just keep writing and then worry about redrafting later or do you need to step away and maybe do something else for a bit which do you find works best for you I find that such an interesting question and I think it's so challenging to answer because it could be either thing right like you you don't ever really know because it really depends because sometimes when you get a feeling that something's not working it's because it isn't working and for example you might need to backtrack and read the past the 40,000 words or whatever and work out where you went wrong because often I think when you start feeling it's not working your words aren't coming it's when something you went off the right road earlier on or maybe a couple scenes ago and actually if you just correct that you'll be back on track but then sometimes it's just you're tired or you had a bad day you maybe saw a bad review or someone you hate got a really good book deal you know something like that um, and uh, and sometimes it's something where you just need to take a break and come back to it tomorrow or it's something maybe where you need to talk to a friend and say this is the issue I've got and you can kind of work out that way so I, I think it's just there's no kind of fixed rule for it because it really just depends and I think trying all of those strategies works like what I frequently do if I I feel it's going wrong is is read over what I've done so far and try to work out if it's to do with the work or if it's to do with the conditions of the work because one thing I noticed for example when I was working on Blackwater Sisters so it's the first book that I finished after having a baby and so the conditions in which I was working were massively different and I had childcare and so on but what it meant especially when I went back to work was I would do very small amounts because I'm quite I like to do a little bit every day when I'm working on a project I'm not one I'm not really a binge writer in any way so I had this kind of schedule for myself created by a pacemaker um, where during my working days my day job I might do 200 words on the book per day and then when I had a writing day or had a free weekend you know morning of the weekend I'd do maybe a thousand words or maybe a thousand five hundred and what I found was actually I would feel really bad about the project during the week <laughs> and then when I actually got time to sit down with it and do like my thousand words or whatever you know I had a few hours to actually focus on it I'd be like oh actually this isn't so bad and so I realized that it wasn't anything to do with the book it was just that if you're doing 200 words when you're really tired at the end of the day they might feel worse words than if you actually have time to you know think about what you're doing and and connect with your project I guess that is a a thing now that when people are trying to fit uh things in around other stuff you feel that you don't have your full attention on it whereas when you do have your full attention on it you can take a step back and appreciate the big picture I want to discuss rewriting as it's a that classic adage writing is rewriting how much rewriting do you do as you go or do you prefer to finish a draft and then reread it and see how it flows this has changed so much like project to project or in the course of my career development as a writer so with my first couple of novels I was very much do a really messy first draft I knew I was writing the first like a certain scene several times characters changed names I knew there were massive plot holes but I, I was just get it all on the, the page vomit draft and then fix it and so my revision would be very intensive and I would have the original draft up in one window and then I have a separate window and in that I would literally be rewriting it from scratch just taking things from the original draft but you know building a new draft and that was necessary to make something even readable as I developed as a writer you know with my third novel it's very different I had a much clearer sense of how it would be structured and how the things I wanted to happen and I think it was a change in being a better writer just having more skills having had more practice and having more confidence because the process of doing an outline and then writing it wasn't 
different. But what it meant was this, the third book was a relatively clean draft. Um, I still had a period where I rewrote the first draft, but it wasn't a kind of rewriting from scratch. It was more having it in a window and then going through it and editing it. So that's really, that's changed for me. So I have to see vomit draft for some projects I've done a cleaner draft and as I was first drafting I have gone back and been like okay actually I'm gonna I'm gonna change this bit before I go any further because I think this is something I need to change now and that will make the rest of this draft easier and once you've got a draft written that you're happy with in isolation who are the first people to read it next do you have a, a range of beta readers or does it go straight to your agent what happens once you're done? So my agent is very editorial. So I know when I send it to my agent, she's going to come back with very rigorous edits, really. She will be like, the middle bit needs to go, or these chapters, you know, and, and so on, or the subplot needs to be changed, whatever. So when I've been under contract, because mostly for timing reasons, I just haven't had the time to send it out to beta readers. So I have a couple of friends who are almost more like alpha readers, like they might be willing to read, but they won't beat it. They will just say, oh, I I thought it was really good, basically. <laughs> which, is, which is nice to hear, especially yeah. when you know that you're going to have a you know, a hideous edit letter from your agent pointing out all the flaws in the book. So that's how it's worked. But generally, if I have the time, I will probably... I don't have like a group that I regularly go to, but I'll just put out a call to my friends and see who's got the time to, to have a look at the book. And you've edited yourself, not just the work you do, but also other people's work in short story collections. And having an agent who's... Also, I guess, you know, kind of like your first editor. In your opinion, what makes a good editor? I think one thing that's really important, and I think this is quite important for writers who are editing, actually, like editing other people's work, is not to necessarily impose how you would do things on the writer. I, I think you're trying to work out what the writer is trying to achieve and what they're trying to say and then help them do that, facilitate that. Because what, I, what I've seen sometimes when writers edit a story that's not theirs is that they'll say this is how I do it or this is how I'd phrase it but that's not always that helpful because sure that's how you do it but it's not your story so I think it's quite a separate skill from from editing yourself obviously when you're editing yourself you're saying like I should phrase that better I should make that more more myself but I think in some ways actually one of the best beta readers I have doesn't really write fiction like but she is a very smart reader she's read a lot she's very attentive when she reads and so I almost find her beta comments more helpful than some of my professional writer friends because she almost has more distance from it she's just as a reader this is how it strikes me this is what confused me this is whatever and she doesn't necessarily tell me how to fix it but she identifies these issues whereas again this isn't the cliche and, and like editors do it as well they admit that they do it which is that often when they suggest the fix is wrong, but the issue that they've identified, they're right about that. Mm. But the way that it's going to get fixed is, is it will really vary by the writer and the writer will have their own idea. Or if you leave them to it, they'll come up with their own idea that will be better for their mm. work. So that's one thing. What makes a good editor? So I think, yeah, reading attentively, having a sense of the genre conventions and so on is quite important. And I think it's not just when you're editing genre, but really everything has a genre you know and so if you're editing a story that's written in literary fiction style your comments and, and what it's meant to achieve is those things are going to be quite different from like an sff story you know not always but but often i can imagine if you're you're editing a story that's meant to be something to the new yorker and you say this story has a sad ending like that's and that's that you need to change that 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 is just incorrect that's bad editorial advice but if it's a romance they're trying to sell it to a genre romance publisher then saying this isn't a happy ending is a legit comment because one of the definitions of whether something's a romance novel or not is whether it has a happy ending and so it's having a sense of the expectations of the reader i think but then also obviously being ready for kind of innovation and, and kind of experimentation all that sort of thing yeah and with you using a couple of different examples there new yorker and you know, romance are there genres that you love as a reader or that you've written fan fiction for that you haven't done in your own novels, but you want to? Is there like a genre that you're really keen to explore? I'm quite, you know, what I read a lot of, actually, and in a way read even more of now that I write um, fantasy is, I don't know how to describe it, they're not really literary fiction, but just books about normal people doing normal things. Not Sally Rooney herself. I haven't read any Sally Rooney yet. But just, just yeah, sometimes it's contemporary, sometimes it's historical. But it's just about their lives. And they there's no magic or anything. Um, and, and, you know, they might like, I don't know, they get married or they get a job or, or whatever. And 
I suppose often, um, because I'm, I'm drawn often to books by women and about women, they are categorized as women's fiction or it's historical fiction if it's in a historical era or whatever. So, so I, I read quite a lot of that. And I suppose if I got the right idea, that's something I quite like to write. But somehow when I write it, it tends to go quite speculative. There always seems to be some sort of fantastical element that crops up. And what draws you to the fantasy genre? You know, in a way, I think it's because it's rare that I ever write something that's based in a really secondary world that I've designed from scratch. I'm not the sort of person who has like a map at the beginning of the book that like that is like a created continent. If the map's at the beginning of the book, like I have written kind of secondary world, but generally it's, it's based very closely on our world it's just like our world with fantasy and um i think part of that is because a lot of what i've written not all of it but but some of it is is very strongly you know it's inspired by malaysian folklore and malaysian mythology um and i would say a belief in spirits and ghosts and so on is more mainstream in malaysia than it is in in most western countries and so i kind of grew up with like i would say the majority of my friends and this includes people who are university educated believe in ghosts my best friend recently discovered that i don't believe in ghosts and was just absolutely gobsmacked He was like, what? But how do you write all that stuff? I said, well, I can write that stuff because I don't believe in spirits because otherwise I would be too scared. So I think for me, it just seems quite natural to write about that stuff. And, and I, always, I always sort of think, you know, on one view, maybe it's not even really fantasy at all. That's how it's marketed. But if you're writing about stuff that people believe in as though they're real, is that, is that actually fantasy? How do you view social media as a writer in you know 2021? Is it essential? Is it a hindrance? Is it a distraction? And if you use your social media, uh, which do you find best for writing and which do you just find best for you? So I don't think any social media works well for writing. I find word processors do, do the best job there. But like, I definitely don't think it's essential. I do think a lot of people who get published get really obsessed with it and worry about their platform and what they do in there. And I just think it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, what matters the most is what you're producing, you're writing. And if you find that if you don't, if you don't enjoy it, you know, don't, don't bother. Um, you really need to. Like I know several very successful writers who just use social media in a very limited way. I definitely also know writers who are like, I have this level of success because I'm able to connect readers, I'm able to market myself via social media. But I just think there are just lots of different ways of being a writer and having success. And I just don't think it's necessary if social media doesn't come naturally to you or you find that it's actually like a negative in your life. I, I enjoy it. And I think the benefits are like connection because as many people say, writing is often a very solitary pursuit. So it's nice to have a way to get to know people, to meet people, um, and to connect with other writers, as well as readers, of course. And so I, I'm on Twitter quite a lot and Instagram. But I think it's also important not to get sucked into it because you, you know, again, these are all cliches, but like they, they are a bubble, aren't they? These social media worlds. And I think you can you can often feel that you have to have commented on every single thing or you have to have read every single thing that people are talking about. Or conversely, it can make you feel worse because you feel like, everyone's constantly getting book deals and everyone's like getting like starred reviews, you know, and off you, here you are in the corner not having published anything in X, you know, number of whatever. And so it's just, it's just important to remember that Twitter is not the world. Yeah. And I think, I think sometimes, especially if you're just on there all the time, you don't really have anything to take you out of yourself. It can be hard to forget that it is just a bubble. Where you said that it's good to have a connection with other writers as well as a readership. How do you view conventions? Do you feel that they're better than social media in some regards? You know, have they been useful to your career? Have they been useful? <laughs> I think it's really hard to answer that one because in a way, networking and seeing people and being around and being seen is always good in a way. So people remember you, say when they've got an anthology they want a story for, or they might remember, so Zen's still around and she's still working. Next time I should just mention to her or her agent that the next time she's got a novel, I'd be interested in seeing it or whatever. And I, I definitely know people who got their agent because they went to a convention or got their book deal because they went to a convention. But equally, like I also, you know, a lot a lot of writers do feel like maybe they have to go to conventions even if they don't particularly enjoy them. Or they might feel if they're in a country that doesn't have access to these conventions that they are disadvantaged as a result. And I definitely think there is an advantage to being able to plug into these networks and these events. But I, I definitely don't want people to feel that just because they don't have access to that, they can't be successful. Because again, I think it's one of those nice-to-haves, but it's not necessary. And actually, if it's something that distracts you from writing, that 
um, costs you more money than it's worth to you personally or if that just makes you feel bad when you go it's definitely just not worth it it's, and it's much better for you to stay home and conserve your energy and write and I definitely also feel and this is particularly in the context of overseas writers because I get asked quite a lot for example by other Malaysian writers do I think I would have the success I have more now if I lived in Malaysia instead of the UK And it's so hard for me to answer because I want to say at the same time that obviously there are benefits to living in a developed country that's closer to the publishing centers. But at the same time, I don't want people to be put off. Like I definitely know people who say to me, oh, Western agent would never want to see anything from me. So I won't even bother submitting. And I just don't think that's true. You know, like everything is online now. And I think it's all there. And at the end of the day, like I said before, it does come down to the writing. So just work on your craft. That's really the most important thing. And don't get distracted by this other stuff. That said, I really like a convention. I go mostly for fun. <laughs> I, don't, I don't go unless I think I'll enjoy it, basically. Yeah, and I think that's a really useful thing to say because I think a lot of times uh, writers might feel under pressure to promote these things and to say... Mm oh, you know, it's so good for this, it's so good for that, social media is so good for this, so good for that. I think there's a lot of people who, like you say, are maybe so introverted that they're intimidated by crowds. They have a level of shyness that it's hard to promote themselves on a personal level, go, hey, I'm important, listen to me, I have value being here. It can be very intimidating when someone has zero experience of how to get in. It just seems everyone's chatting, everyone seems to know each other, and you're just an outsider looking in. And to... Say it's okay to not go. It's okay to not try and you know, do all your networking on social media. That The importance is the work. And actually, if you don't have the energy or you don't believe that you have the skill set to do this big personal networking, either in person or on social media, as long as you focus on your writing, as long as your stories are good, your characters are interesting, and you are committed to a consistent, clear narrative voice have belief in that because at the end of the day submission editors agents they're looking for the story not this yeah amazingly chatty person who's putting great memes online or is just buying everyone drinks at the convention it doesn't mean that they're good writers i I 100 believe in that the the work speaks for itself that, that i really believe in that and it's nice to you know hear that because it's not something that i think is said enough And it's something that can easily get lost, especially when a lot of people are talking online or talking at conventions on how to be successful. They're like, this is it, right? We we have to be here. We have to justify why we're here. We have to justify why we're spending all this time online. Yeah, and I have another thing to say on that, which is be honest with yourself. Because let's be real, writing is really hard. (laughs) It's very difficult. And actually, a lot of the time, what I feel happens is that, and I, I do it myself sometimes, is that you do the easier thing because it feels like you're helping your career. So spending loads of time on social media feels like you're helping your career, you know, building a platform or going to cons feels like it's helping your career. But ultimately, you have to be honest with yourself because the thing that helps your career the most is writing another story and finishing it, you know, and getting it as good as you can and then sending it out. And that is the hardest part. So I can see lots of people just avoiding it as much as they can by doing the other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a great thing to say. Um, I just have uh, two more things that I just want to touch on here. It's like the final pieces of advice. It's my belief that writers, you know, continue to grow and develop with every story that they write. And you've said how your stories have changed, you know, like your third novel was very different. And then obviously your latest um, published work was the first one after having a child. Is there anything that you're consciously aware of that you learnt on the last story that you wrote that you're now trying to apply on the thing you're currently writing? Yeah, so there's two things. So one thing is that if you really enjoy what you're writing and if you're writing about something that you have personal stake in, a personal emotional stake in, and that fascinates you, I, I feel the work will always be stronger. It's not that easy to work out what that is, but that's kind of part of your lifelong job. That's what finding your voice means it's working out what really fascinates you and then just pushing yourself to, to focus in on that the second thing <laughs> and this all sounds silly but it's something that I found really hard to internalize so I really struggled with plot and pacing earlier as a writer and it, it's still something I don't think of as, as being particularly my strength but that said when Blackwater Sister came out lots of people were saying oh, the plot's really twisty or it's really fast-paced, you can put it down, which I'm very proud of because I really struggled a lot with that on previous novels and, and 
that was a big part of what I worked on in, in repeated revisions, very extensive revisions. And, <laughs> and the secret to that, which uh, I wish I could tell myself, but when I was earlier, I wouldn't really have known how to put into practice, which is like, stuff just has to keep happening. Like, <laughs> just make sure in each new scene, something happens. And that's, it's not that I learned it, but it's that I somehow internalized it. It's not that I didn't know that things should happen in a book before. It's just that you work out what that actually means in terms of structuring a story over time. But yeah, so that's the second thing I've learned. So hopefully I'll be able to keep it up with the next book. And is there one piece of advice that you've received throughout your career that you find motivates you through your own writing? Is there one thing that you keep returning to that's like core to your writing that you feel uh, has helped. I can think of things like that. They're not really advice. It's, it's encouragement. So I'll offer two things because you never really know what might help you. So one thing that I found very helpful a while ago, and it's something that I came across in a book called uh, 13 Ways of Looking at the Novel by Jane Smiley, which is a writing craft book. And I, I, I often read writing craft books, often when I'm drafting or revising something and I feel that it's not going well. And I read these writing craft books saying, being like, please tell me how to plot. And then I often bounce off them because a lot of the time they are based on kind of script writing rules, which is fine, but they just don't really seem to work that well with how my brain works. Whereas Jane Smiley is a novelist and she writes about it from a novelist point of view. And one thing that she said, which I find really useful, and I still use it when I'm thinking about why didn't this book work for me as a reader, is the ending of your book needs to answer the, the question that the beginning asks. So make sure that when you're writing a book, there's going to be some kind of implied question that the opening, the premise asks, and you need to answer that by the end. And to me, that's just quite a useful way, because it's not prescriptive. It doesn't tell you to write a book in a certain way. But at the same time, if you don't answer that question, if you don't satisfy the puzzle you've set up with your setup, readers will be like, what happened there? So that's one kind of writing crafting that I find quite useful. Another thing, but this is very personal, so I don't know if it'll be helpful to anyone, but I, I used to struggle quite a lot about, this kind of goes to finding your voice, about what I was supposed to be writing about or what I was entitled to write about in a weird way. And I think in a way, it's, it's you know, it maybe goes into these conversations that we're having about cultural appropriation and so on. Except for me, it was the other way around where, you know, when I was growing up, because I was reading all these books by white people set in, in kind of Western countries, as a small child in Malaysia, all my stories, everyone had blonde hair and blue eyes and they were all called Bob or whatever. They didn't have names of the kind that like me and my friends did and they didn't look like us and they didn't talk like us. And so it took a long time for me to, because that was the what I was presented with, that was what I was reading. I, I figured that's what books were. Only white people were allowed to read books, essentially, because that was the message that I was yeah. getting from the books I was reading. And so it takes a long time to kind of overcome that programming and work out a new way for yourself to write and break through that mental block in a way. But at the same time, for example, my first two novels, Sorcerer to the Crown and the True Queen, are obviously certain regions of England and they use a very archaic kind of language and they're drawing on all these like merchant ivory films, you know, period films, whatever. And I felt quite conflicted about that as well oh, maybe I should be writing about something else. Or maybe I should be writing books that are only books set in Malaysia, whatever. And one thing that a friend said to me that has always stuck with me, she said, oh, it's all yours. This is all stuff that it's legitimately part of your heritage in a way because you grew up reading it and that was brought to you. That was genuinely part of your cultural background. And so I found that really comforting. So I think what I would translate that into is uh, it's always really important to think about power balance and the real world impact of what you write but ultimately if you're sincere and you're engaging with something it's really important to follow your passion and not worry too much about other people's expectations of what you're producing like it's really important to learn to listen to that inner voice that's great that's all we have time for this week but i'd just like to thank zen show for joining us thank you so much thank you thank you that was the real writing process of Zen Cho. If you'd like to learn more about Zen, you can find all of her details on her website, zencho.org. You can also find Zen on Instagram and Twitter under the handle zenaldehyde, which is spelt Z-E-N-A-L-D-E-H-Y-D-E. And if you'd like this interview, please consider leaving a review. I'm currently a team of one, and the more positive reviews I get, the more authors are likely to want to come on the show and share that process with you. Thank you all for listening. Until next time, or until the world ends.
Time can never be your trusted friend or your sworn ally. No, it's the harshest mistress of all. And life is just a chain of moments spent, a thousand hellos and goodbyes. Maybe a love like ours can leave out its call. I have this.